Hello, and welcome to the Century Podcast. I'm Alexander Elmore, Editor-in-Chief of the University of Colorado Denver's student-run weekly news publication, The Century. In this, the first ever episode of The Century Podcast, our managing and forum editor Kaya chats with staff writer Frankie about video game villains, what makes the good ones great, and why they're so necessary to the medium. This is a subject in which I have very little knowledge. While playing the video game Alien Isolation, as soon as I died the first time at the hands of a human, not even the xenomorph, I quit playing the game altogether. So I'll turn this over to the more competent hands of Kaya and Frankie. Hello, my name is Kaya. This is the Century Podcast. Frankie, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, my name's Frankie. We're here to talk about villains, video games, and why Tom Nook belongs in federal prison. Villains are an extremely crucial part of any story, and without them, previous heroes would have nothing to fight for. Imagine trying to play Mario, and if Bowser decided that he was going to bake a cake instead of kidnapping Princess Peach. In all honesty, that just makes Mario look like kind of a tool. A douche? Asshole? We allowed to say asshole? Eh. Going around, killing the locals for funsies? Not a good look. This is what we need, Browser. Someone has to take the crown for being the biggest tool, and it's never fun if it's the character you're supposed to play as. These characters are essentially a plot device. A really horrible, infuriating plot device. And it always keeps us and our heroes on our toes. So the first sign, I would say, of a well-written villain is having a motive similar to the hero. How do you feel about this? I definitely think that's true, because if the villain has a similar motive, then that makes them possibly a morally gray character, which tend to be much more interesting than black and white characters, just because the player doesn't know whether or not they should be rooting for the villain or the hero since they have the same goals. You were saying earlier that that was like a really good way that they used Ellie and Abby in The Last of Us 2 because, you know, after a certain point, the moral areas between the two characters kind of start to blend. And maybe that's why people were a little bit upset about the way that The Last of Us 2 went. Definitely. And I think that sort of criticism was completely unfounded. The writer and co-director of the game, Neil Druckmann, said that he wanted people to feel this anger, this very intense anger just because Abby and Ellie are pitted against each other from the very beginning because of things that happened in the first game. So it was just really interesting. You get to play as the quote-unquote bad guy of the story for half the time and the quote-unquote good guy of the story for half the time. And in the end, you find that they're basically the same person with the same motives, but because you have an attachment to one of the characters, you feel more inclined to root for them. But Neil Druckmann's point was really just trying to show that a cycle of violence is really hard to break and revenge is really empty in most cases. Right, and you were saying that like, because of all of that pointless violence, you really don't get that quote unquote final boss moment that comes along with the most ends of video games. Because there really is none, because, you know, Abby didn't really have much to offer as far as being a true villain goes. But regardless, I think it's really important that we have villains like that because they do help move a better story along. I think if it was just black and white, it would be a little bit boring to play video games because, you know, it would be so easy to just hate the villain immediately. But I think the ones that work the best are the ones where you 
can try and sympathize with what the villain is doing because you understand, you know, their behavior and the things that they've been through as a character. And that's extremely important. Definitely. For games that just have a black and white sort of morals for each character, that seems to be more gameplay oriented games. And games like The Last of Us Part Two, while they have really hard difficulty settings and it's a lot of thought going into how you can get around enemies, it's mostly story driven rather than gameplay driven. Right, exactly. And having a really well thought out villain is extremely important for story driven, you know, type games because it's not just about going through and killing mob bosses, you know what I mean? It actually has to have a beginning, middle and end. Definitely. That final boss battle never comes. So it's really interesting to see how video games use these villains to move the story of the game forward. For example, something that's commonly seen in video game villains is entitlement. Take Ganondorf from Zelda, for example. His character feels that because he has a Triforce of power, he should be able to take over all of Hyrule, like it's his birthright or something. And I think that trait of entitlement is extremely important because it gives the villains almost an edge, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So Ganon's t- entitlement specifically drives the entire story of Zelda because of that one thing that he wants. He only wants the power from the Triforce. So that in itself drives all of his character decisions and everything that his character does within the Zelda franchise. Now, even though there's only been like three human incarnations of Ganon himself, you can even see it in the non-human ones as well. Like that, that character still has the exact same entitlement of wanting all of the power. So when you look on the hero side of things, when you look at Link, you see the opposite side of it. He has the Triforce of Courage, so he's not entitled to anything, but he does have that courage to want to stop Ganon. Regardless, this specific entitlement is something that is seen a lot. And I do think like, are there any characters that you know specifically that kind of show this same entitlement of like wanting something that isn't necessarily theirs? I can't think of any specific villain right now, but I know that, you know, everyone hates a good Karen. So take the Monopoly Man, for example, or Tom Nook from Animal Crossing. He just wants money and feels entitled to that money. So even if it's a cutesy poopsy game like Animal Crossing, you can't help but harbor some resentment against that character. Right, exactly. And it's like, like that entitlement of other characters that always that always leads the player to have some type of disdain towards the villain. And even if it like you were saying, even if it is a cutesy game like Animal Crossing, that entitlement has to show up somewhere, be it in wanting to take all of the power for yourself or wanting to take all of your money. But you were saying. I was just going to say that the crazy thing is we can see this entitlement spilling over into the gaming community. It's almost like art imitating life or life imitating art. I mean, honestly, gamers of which I am one, I'm not calling I'm not not calling myself out either. But seriously, gamers are the hugest villains in that way. All the gamer dude bros feel so entitled to their Call of Duty lobbies and horrible hygiene habits that they kind of ruin the experience for people who are just coming into the games or for people just trying to play games for the heck of it. Yeah, that entitlement is very apparent in the community. People feel like because they've been doing or playing a game for so long, they're entitled to everything and anything that comes along with that community. 
And they also have the tendency to seriously gatekeep a lot of things. Like I know a big problem within the gaming community now is like a lot of women are starting to get into more multiplayer games and moving away from single player games to try and, you know, just have fun like everybody else. And I would say specifically like first person shooter games like Call of Duty or Overwatch or Valorant. The the player base in those communities are so toxic towards new players and specifically women. And I, I've just never been able to understand where that comes from. And it feels like maybe people are just taking these traits from the villains that they're seeing in the games that they're playing and recreating them in their life without really noticing it. Honestly, I mean, it seems like gamers will see a villain and I guess relate to them, but for the wrong reasons. Not for their motives or of making a better world necessarily, but making a better world by getting rid of the people they don't agree with. I know a great example of gatekeeping is Father Comstock from Bioshock Infinite. It doesn't really show his face much in the city of Columbia or the game as a whole, but it's a textbook definition of gatekeeping. You're not allowed to pass through the gates of this beautifully racist town in the sky unless you get baptized before you enter the city. And it's just hilarious, I think, that gamers don't see their own hypocrisy because of these traits. Like, they're doing the exact same thing these villains are doing, but they're not calling themselves out. Right. And it's so crazy because, you know, gamers have played this game, specifically Bioshock Infinite, so they know what it feels like to be angry about something you know because of how the game is you know there's a lot of racism in the game there's a lot of sexism in the game so knowing that these traits show up in games wouldn't you not also want to try and not do that in real life but it seems like people see these things and are like oh you know maybe it's just fiction and then they are recreating it without you know unconsciously and they think there's nothing wrong and it's it's been such a terrible terrible way that the gaming community has been dealing with this because nobody really says anything it's it's just the, the general consensus is the gatekeeping is good and you know keep everybody out but gaming was never about that you know what i mean it was always about having a nice community to go sit down with and relax at the end of the day play a couple of games or something and then just forget about all the bad stuff in the world but if the bad stuff of the world is seeping over into your your utopia or your safe place what are you supposed to do at that point? You know what I mean? The most talented gatekeepers through all of this is the gamer do bros. And just to be clear, a gamer do bro is not a gender specific term. It's a state of being and a terrible one at that. It can be any kind of person for whatever reason that just can't share the damn fun. And it's it's like, why is it so hard to just sit down, enjoy a game of Valorant without getting all up in arms because there's somebody different than you in the lobby? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, the entire point of video games, like you said, is to build your own community and have fun. But now it just seems like the dude bros are trying to be annoyed by any me piece of media they come across. They don't feel like having fun anymore. They just want to be annoyed. They're trying to nitpick at every single detail. And of course, pieces of media can't always be perfect. I mean, no one's going to like every aspect of a game or a movie or a TV show. But... Some people can't get beyond their own prejudices or biases against certain things that happen in games. And I don't know, it just, 
seems people don't take games as serious pieces of media. And I feel like that's one of the reasons they don't see their own problems or the reason for their gatekeeping or entitlement to these games. And then on another hand, it seems like these they take these pieces of media too seriously and that they're entitled to something perfect. Right, exactly. And it seems like there's always something wrong no matter what. It's like the nitpicking is honestly unbearable. Like, where did all of this need to gatekeep even come from? I guess it could be that people want to feel superior than others. They feel like they like something that most people don't. It's like a hipster mentality. I liked it before it was cool. And that just ends up being extremely uncool. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what about a video game is going to make you superior to another person? That's that's literally so lame. Like, oh no, I'm so sorry. Allow me to bow on my knees before you, Noob Destroyer 29. Like, a break, please. I need it. It's because these dude bros found one another in the game lobby of Call of Duty. And since they found their people, it feels like they need to protect it from outsiders. But I'd be lying if I said it wasn't total douche behavior. So, speaking of douche behavior, I want to know who keeps making all the executive calls to manufacture zombies. That has and never will be a good idea. You would think after countless Resident Evil movies and, or Resident Evil games, excuse me, and six movies, that Umbrella Corp would make a good choice. Like, they manufactured t the T-Virus to do what exactly? Make a super buff dude? Like, at what point did that seem like a logical solution to anything? According to fanbite.com, throughout their trials, the player of Resident Evil can find notes, files, recordings, and all sorts of other correspondence that explain the origins of the crisis the tyrant virus, or T-virus. This biological breakthrough came about when a pharmaceutical company tragically failed in its attempt to create a lethal bioweapon, and instead turned its focus towards creating a superhuman capable of surviving otherwise lethal blows to the brain and other vital organs. For money, of course. The way this is just blatant exploitation of whatever soldiers signed up for that, of course they're doing it all for money, because literally what else would lead someone to start making zombies? If they don't die, we don't have to pay for the funeral costs. But the scary parallel between zombies and children is something that we need to talk about more. Why? Whatever do you mean? Okay, first of all, they bite. Secondly, the mob mentality that come with these little neo-gamers is insane. I've seen an entire generation of kids spend so much of their parents' money on microtransactions, and honestly, the gaming companies are the biggest villains for this. I know. We can see this in normal online platform games and mobile games. Kids don't really see the money, and when they do, they just think, oh, I have V-Bucks now from Fortnite or something like that. And the companies know this. They know children are just going to blindly pay for the stuff because they are small and dumb and don't know what money is. Especially because it's so easy. You can connect your card to literally anything now. So it's kind of horrible. Not to mention that some of the companies put up paywalls or subscriptions to even play their games. Like World of Warcraft is a perfect example of this. It's $15 a month for a subscription. Now, I don't know about you, but there was literally no way in hell my mom was paying $15 a month for me to sit around and kill elves all day. Not even a chance in heck. I mean, even the online subscriptions too. Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo, they all do this. 
They tell players that the only way to play with other people around the world is to pay for it, when games on PC servers, for the most part, have always been free. Even with Call of Duty, you have to pay for the game, obviously, but the extra price of playing online doesn't exist, so I say eat the major gaming companies. Honestly, and it's like, it's not like it's impossible to have a free server on consoles. It's just that these companies are continuously trying to get money from people. It's it's not something that can't be done because it has been done and it's been done for decades with PC gaming. Like pay for the game, but the servers, they're within the game. They're free. As far as that goes, you don't have to pay an extra PC subscription to play games on Steam. Like, you know what I mean? You just get the game and you use the servers that they use for, you know, that are within the game. And I think that because they're charging so much money for these subscription prices, it's just it's honestly evil. It's like, why are we charging so much money for people just to have fun? And it feels like these companies are embodying every single trope that they put into their villains. And, you know, it really has me thinking, are they doing this on purpose? I mean, I don't know if they're doing it on purpose, but either way, it's working. They're entitled, they're gatekeeping, but we'll keep giving them money if they keep making the same content. And honestly, 10-year-olds will continue to spend hundreds and hundreds of their parents' dollars on V-Bucks. As much as we would love to get away from all these villainous tropes that we see, in the community, in games themselves, and within the gaming companies, I, I genuinely don't think anything is really going to change just because it's working so well for the companies and gamers aren't really trying to do anything about it. Everybody's really just turning a blind eye to everything that's going on because, you know, so as long as I have my games, everything is fine. But it's like, when your community is falling apart, wouldn't you want to help to make it better? Honestly, I mean, gaming dude bros will nitpick at a game itself all day long, but they won't realize that the actual problem with the game is that not only did they pay 60 bucks for it, but now they have to pay for a PS Plus, you know, subscription to actually get the full experience. Right. And even Nintendo did this as well with their online subscription service. You know, even though it's much cheaper than, you know, most subscription services go for, it's only $20 a year. But before they had that, you could play online on Nintendo Switch for free. It's always been like that. They only just recently started doing this. And I'm I'm honestly not sure why, because it's not like the games couldn't function without it before. They were all of the online services were already there. They just started charging people for it. So now you have an entire group of gamers who can't enjoy going online because you have to pay for it now. You know, like eight-year-olds who want to just play Mario Kart with randos on the internet aren't going to want to pay $20 just to do that. And I'm sure their parents aren't going to want to have to pay a yearly subscription for it either, unless their parents also happen to be gamers. Exactly. And that's a perfect example of gatekeeping in the community because Gatekeeping doesn't mean against women or against minorities. It also means against people that don't have enough money to pay for these subscriptions all the time. Like, it's just, we want to have fun. Stop making us pay so much money for it and we'll continue to give you our business. If you keep jacking up the prices, then less people are going to be able to afford your products. Right, exactly. And it's like, 
you think about all these major corporations within video games and you go, you know, it seems like they're just talking about themselves. Honestly, the Umbrella Corporation, Nintendo, they both have red in their logos. What's the true difference? I think that's pretty suspicious, not gonna lie. You know, Nintendo, if you're out there making zombies, just know I don't want to sign up for it. And please make Nintendo Online free again because I can't afford it. <laughs> Thank you everyone so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this very first episode of the Century Podcast. Sorry if it was a little wonky. We're just trying to figure things out still, but it was fun for me and Frankie, I hope that you had a good time as well. This has been amazing. I can't wait for future episodes. And honestly, I think I'm going to go kill some zombies now. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. Later, taters. The Century Podcast is executive produced by Tej Bolin, Tirza Watts, and Natasha Sherrod. It is produced by Alexander Elmore and Kennedy Earhart. Episodes are edited and mixed by Kennedy Earhart and are recorded via Discord using our staff's own equipment. This episode was written and narrated by Kai Stallings and Frankie Spiller. The Century Podcast is paid for by the students of the University of Colorado Denver through their student fees. We'd like to give a special thank you to the regents of the University of Colorado, our Chancellor Dr. Michelle Marks, and the students of the University of Colorado Denver, and to you, our listeners. I'm Alexander Elmore, this has been The Century Podcast, and did you know that in the live-action 1993 Super Mario Brothers film, Mario never actually calls Daisy by her name. Thanks for listening. <laughs>